All right. So, uh, yeah, so Pastor John, come on up. Uh, we've known each other for quite a number, a number of years now. He's, a lot of you know that I've been very engaged in the uh, Journey to Transformation and the Sentinel Group's um, videos, documentaries on community transformation around the world and revivals and Pastor John. Before we met each other, he was already connected with uh, Larry Lane, a good friend of ours, and um, and that. So, um, heart for revival and um, pastored up in Chewila for about five years, right? Three and a half. Three and a half seems like two or twenty, right? No, <laughs> three and a half. So, um, but um, anyways, a good brother and um, uh, just want to welcome you. So you, you can go up here. Okay, thanks, Jim. Yeah, I really appreciate your pastor. Um, I don't find many out there that I can say are kindred spirits with me in terms of understanding the times that we live in, understanding the gravity of the times that we live in, understanding the great need that we have for God to uh, not just tinker a little bit with the existing situation, but to come in and do a radical overhaul. Uh, We are in great need in our country today. This is up on the altar for some reason, or on the podium. Great book, by the way. Outstanding book. So, uh, what I'm going to talk about today, believe it or not, is revival. <laughs> Who'd have thought? Um, but not so much uh, the revival itself and what it looks like. You've, you've learned a lot of that from your pastor over the years. But I'm going to uh, explore a little bit about why we haven't seen it. I mean, it seems like a lot of people are aware of this. A lot of people are praying. Uh, For a long time, I had sort of the the goal of my life is to make more prayer happen, or at least try to make more prayer happen, and to encourage people to pray and to preach about prayer. And when I had a denominational job some years back, uh, I would go around giving seminars on how important it is to pray in the local church. Pray, 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 pray. And uh, hopefully getting more people to pray would get God to, to move and, and make a big difference. And, you know, I think I'm not alone. There are a lot of people today encouraging people to pray, and there are a lot of people praying. And uh, probably right now there are more people praying than we've had uh, for a long time. And more people are praying more prayer. And so we have more people Praying, and each of them are praying more, and so we have prayer kind of multiplying, and uh, still things get worse. So, so what's going on there? Well, uh, one of the people that I knew, that that Tim also knew before we met each other, uh, who was actually the leader in the Sentinel Group at large, is a fellow named George Otis, and he uh, makes a very provocative statement that really got my attention and sort of arrested my thinking. I've known George for many years, but I was just listening to a a little flash drive that we got from the Discovery Weekend that Tim helped facilitate, Spokane Praise, which is a group I'm part of in Spokane, P-R-A-Y-S, for prayer. Praising the Lord is good, too, that kind of praise, but uh, we're we're mostly about prayer. worked with the Sentinel Group to host this Discovery Weekend last April. And Tim was one of the facilitators, like I said, your pastor. And uh, we got this flash drive, and I was looking through it, and 
Uh, I, I'm familiar with most of it, but I, wanted, I listened to a little bit of what George Otis said. And he made the statement that uh, he firmly believes the reason that we haven't seen God move yet is not that we don't have a lot of people praying and a lot of people praying a lot. It's that that's not the main thing that gets God's attention and moves his hand. I, I'm sort of paraphrasing it. I, I, I may not be representing him entirely true. But I thought, well, well, wow, if that's not the case, then what do we do? Because that's what I've kind of devoted my life to in recent years is encouraging that very thing. Have I been wasting my time? Well, what he said that really got my attention, and I'm not sure it's true. I can't prove he's right, but I think he's on to something. He said that it's not so much how many and how much when it comes to prayer as it is who is praying and how they pray. The who and the how matters more to God than the how many and how much. Quick disclaimer, don't stop praying. If you aren't part of the who, God still hears your prayer. God still answers prayer. God still loves us. He cares about everything, every dimension, every detail of our lives. God loves us. He's powerful. He's sovereign. He answers prayer. And so don't stop praying, even if you're not some of the who. In fact, I'm not sure I'm some of the who. But anyway, uh, keep praying. It still works. But what we're talking about is the kind of prayer that brings about a massive move of God that we describe as transforming revival. Why isn't that happening? Well, as George Otis, who is one of the foremost students of revival, has done his research, his research has led to the the transformation videos and Discovery Weekend and the principles that are described there, and the principles in in the movie, the quickening that he produced and all of that. As he's been researching this for years, he's discovered this, he believes, that it is who prays and how they pray. So what I'm going to do today is explore both of those things a little bit with us. What is characteristic of those people that George Otis believes are the kind of people that God really dials into and responds to on the subject of revival? And the way that George developed this information, of course, is studying revivals. And not only what happens when the revival comes, But what happened before it came, what sort of circumstances were present, and who God used as catalysts, as individuals who were particularly dialed into the need for God to move in a powerful way and were the people who were praying diligently. For example, one of the great revivals in the not-too-distant past, during the time that I was barely alive, back in the early 50s, uh, was... um, a move of God in the Hebrides Islands off the coast of Scotland. And two primary people on one of those islands were two elderly women who met in a barn and stormed the throne of God. Uh, these weren't you know, big-name preachers or something. These were very quiet grandma types that really had a heart for uh, God and a desire to see him move in their island, which had become dead. 
religiously. They had churches, they had tradition, but uh, things are pretty dead. And so God used those two people. What, what was significant about them and their prayer? Among others, those are the kinds of things that George looked at. And so the who, and here again I took some liberty. I actually didn't listen to his whole talk on this. I just heard the introduction. <clears throat> and so I don't know what he said about who and how, but I, I, I've kind of been studying this for a while myself and can draw a few conclusions. And one of those is to look at one of the f- most famous verses we quote all the time when it comes to revival, and that's Second uh, Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Many of you probably have it memorized. If my people who are called by my name will uh, humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways and pray, then I will hear from heaven and will heal their land. Now, there's a very specific context that that applies to in the Bible, which is not our current context, but I believe that the principle of that kind of understanding of dealing with a dire situation is what God is looking for. And he lists several things there. He says that my people will humble themselves. God loves to hear the prayers of humble people. I won't try to explain why, because I don't really know why. I have some ideas. But God loves humble people. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul is writing, and he says, Have this mind in yourself which is in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not equality with God is something to be hung on to, but he emptied himself. He humbled himself. Jesus was humble. And that, that's the whole theme surrounding that, that quote. Jesus was humble. We need to be humble too. Humble is really important. And the humble is really difficult. Some people somehow just kind of fall into it. God bless you. For most of us, it doesn't come easy. And for me, it especially didn't come easy. One reason I resisted the Lord for as long as I did in my life is that I was very proud and very selfish, very egotistical. And uh, I didn't want God, if there was such a thing, to uh, mess with that. I wanted to be in charge. I wanted control of my life to do what I wanted to do. And that didn't work out very well. And I reached a point of desperation where I finally prayed to God, okay, Lord, I give up. You come in and take over. And he did. And I could sense something change immediately at that, that moment. And then I started trying to follow Jesus. But I still was very selfish, still very proud, still very egotistical. And that was almost 50 years ago. And I still struggle with it. So I, I, I understand a bit about how it's difficult to be humble. And kind of what humble means, because I'm not it yet. Uh, although... It's certainly a goal, and God knows that, and so he helps me often. If I get too fat-headed and start thinking I'm pretty great, he'll bring along some circumstance in my life where I make a complete fool out of myself or fail miserably at something or, in one way or another, get knocked back into the sort of mindset that I should be in. And also the Holy Spirit is at work in my life as he is in all of us who have trusted God and invited him to come dwell within us as he forgives our sins. Many have had a deeper move of God as well with the Holy Spirit. 
And so if the Holy Spirit is active in our lives, bringing about transformation and change. But we have to cooperate. If we truly want to be the person God wants us to be, if we truly want Christ-like character in our lives, there's some work to be done. We need to change because our old sinful ways, which drag along with us to some degree, even after we become born again, <clears throat> need to be crucified. They need to die. They need to go away. And that takes time as a rule. It takes us applying spiritual disciplines in our lives. It takes us doing this. It takes us studying the Word. It takes us memorizing the Word. It takes us praying. It takes us uh, spending time with God alone. It uh, takes us being involved in a community of believers where iron sharpens iron, as it says in the Old Testament, for us to bump up against each other in, in supporting relationships where we grow together and uh, move past our shortcomings as time goes on. Uh, this all takes time as a rule. The Holy Spirit can supercharge the process, of course, but most of us don't want to be humble. <laughs> that gets in the way. You have to have that kind of desire to work with the Holy Spirit to become people who care more about others than we care for ourselves. We view others as more important than ourselves. You know, I spent much of my, my younger years trying to compare myself to other people and trying to posture myself so that I was better in whatever particular activity I was working on. If it was my schoolwork, I wanted to be better. If it was my music, I wanted to be better. If it was sports, I wanted to be better. And of course, in most cases, I wasn't much better than a lot of people. But I still was, that was my mindset. I needed to be better than others. That's exactly the opposite of being humble. And we could talk about this a lot, but uh, that's important. God loves to answer prayers of humble people who truly are not all about themselves, but care more about others, care more about God's work, compare more about being faithful and serving him than they do about their own thing. And so humble is really important. God loves to answer the prayers of humble people. That particular verse also says, if we turn from our wicked ways, there's a religious word for that. It's called repenting. Repenting is not fun either. Being humbled isn't fun as a rule. Finding out that we have sinned or that we are sinning in a pattern of sin or that something we're doing is outside the will of God and that we need to change is not a fun realization. And we've all dealt with that in various ways over the years. <clears throat> One of the things that's so key to revival coming is a lot of repentance, widespread repentance. And it starts with a core group, a remnant, really taking this to heart. And if you're like me, you're probably saying, well, I've done this so many times, what do I got left to repent of? Well, I'll tell you one thing. <clears throat> I was a pastor for many years. I just retired about four years ago. And so I was pastoring churches. <clears throat> and um, guess what? Despite all my efforts as a pastor, things still got worse in the world around us. Folks, this is happening on our watch. Bottom line, churches in the United States have not been salt and light to sufficient degree to stop the powers of darkness from doing their thing. 
We just haven't gotten the job done. We haven't got enough people saved. We haven't got enough people discipled. We haven't got Christians in influential positions of leadership. We just haven't gotten it done. And so there's some repentance that needs to take repentance that needs to take place about that. That's more the sin of omission. You know there are two kinds of sins. Sins of commission are things that you do knowingly and you, you know it's a sin and you do it anyway. Uh, sins of omission are things that we should have done, good things we should have done, but we didn't do when we had the ability to do it. And in many ways, the church has been guilty of that for years, and we need to repent of that. It's interesting, in Daniel chapter 9, you know, Daniel was in a tough place. Uh, When Daniel was a young man, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar and his hordes came and completely wiped out Judah, and Jerusalem, Judea and Jerusalem, the, what was left of Israel at that time, and destroyed the temple, carted the best and brightest off into captivity in Babylon, hundreds of miles away, a very different culture, different place, and Daniel was one of those. And he's believing that God was going to restore the people to their land at some point. And he was praying on behalf of his nation, in chapter 9, and he prayed in the first person, even though he wasn't the problem. He was praying for the other people in his country as though he were part of the problem. We need to do that kind of praying, Daniel chapter 9 kind of praying. Repentance is so important in in all of this, and uh, we need to be that kind of people that's so surrendered, so yielded, that we're not about ourselves. we're humble, we recognize that we're fallen, that, that we haven't done all we could, now, some people have worked really hard, a lot harder than I worked. But still, it happened on our watch. And we need to be able to say, God, I must be complicit in this somehow. And so those kind of people catch God's attention. People who are surrendered. Another term in here um, is in that verse is that seek his face. These are people who seek his face. Are we actively seeking the Lord? It's one thing to go through the motions. We come to church on Sunday morning. It's great to see you all here. Congratulations. Pat yourself on the back. This is a good thing. Um, when we're in church, things can happen. When we worship, things can happen. God can show up. We can be, hear a great word presented from the Bible. I mean, lots of good stuff can happen in church, especially if it's a good church. And this is. But seek his face. Is that actively what we do when we come to church on Sunday morning? Do we come to church thinking, I'm going to draw closer to God today. I'm going to seek his presence. I'm going to actively worship him with everything I have and not just sing songs. I'm going to engage with the music and with the words. And these are going to become real to me. I'm going to be very attentive to the words of the preacher and hear the word of God preached and see how that applies to my life. I really want to draw closer to Jesus in all that I do. Is that part of us? Are we seeking his face? You know, uh, um, In James chapter 4, verse 6, we see this beautiful verse. I'll uh, I'll actually read uh, several verses around it. God gives more grace. 
Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Ha, there's the humble thing. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Then verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That's an incredible promise. How do we draw near to God? Well, we get serious about spending time with him and getting close in that time. Many of you have quiet times or prayer times or whatever you want to call it. Uh, are these the sort of thing that you just uh, do quickly and check? I've, I've done that. Uh, or is this a time where you really want to get in touch with God and hear from him and to experience his reality and his presence? He promises that if we draw near to him, he'll draw near to us. So how do we draw near to him? Well, we give him time. We are serious about that goal. We are in his word because he speaks through his word. We're in prayer because he speaks in prayer. We listen while we're praying and don't just dump our urgent list on him and then move on. We spend time in worship. We spend time honoring him. Uh, We make room for him in our lives. There's so many things. That has to be part of our deal. We, we, We need to be people who are seeking his face. And prayer is an ideal place to do that. And so is your praying the kind of prayer? I'm sort of getting into part two. We're talking about the who right now instead of the how. But the part, you know, who we are and how we become that person has to do with how we pray as well. They're, they're, they kind of go together. It's not that you do one or the other. They're, they sort of overlap, the who and the how. And uh, we seek his face. We long for his presence. You know, the, that, that's really part of the how to pray, so I'll get to that in a moment. But we uh, need to be a hungry people, hungry for the presence of God. Longing for his reality. It's so important. There's a great verse <clears throat> in James chapter 5, one more chapter. Uh, many of you know it. I love the King James version of this. This is the second half of verse 16 in James 5. The fervent and effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Well, look at that availeth much. That means the prayer accomplishes a lot. And so this is the kind of person doing the kind of prayer that accomplishes a lot. So that's what we're talking about today. So there's that part. This kind of prayer from this kind of person accomplishes a lot. And so what is that? The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman or youth or child. Accomplishes much, availeth much, righteous person. Now, I, I know, I know basic theology. Once you're born again, your sins are forgiven. You now have a, a righteousness that's from God that's not your own. And so you're righteous before him in his eyes. And, and that's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, are we really righteous people? It's not that God looks at us as though we are. Uh, are we really people that are leading sinless lives? 
Are we people that are set apart for him? There's a fancy word, theological word, consecrated. We don't talk about it enough. Are we set apart for him? To be consecrated is to set apart for a holy purpose. But it also carries this attitude that that we've acquired some degree of holiness. (coughs) You know, this is the Pentecostal church. The Pentecostal movement came out of the holiness movement. And the holiness movement happened within the the Methodist of the time. That was way back in, in the later 1800s in our country. And there was a real emphasis on holiness, living holy lives, and becoming more and more like Jesus to the point that we we really hardly sinned anymore because we're so changed on the inside. And that's the idea we're talking about here. Are, Are we those kind of people? Not just people who sin all the time and ask God to forgive us and he forgives us, but we actually made some progress in conquering the sin. We don't do it as much. We're getting more and more like Jesus. You know, Jesus never sinned. Are we becoming that? And that's a whole big topic in and of itself. And so I'll just quickly summarize the who here. The who are humble people. The who are people who hunger for God and his reality and his presence. And the who are people who are righteous. They're godly. They're pure. You know, pure is an interesting word. There are a couple of interesting verses in the Old Testament. Uh, Psalm 24, 3. Who shall ascend the hill of God? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands and a pure heart. Second Chronicles 16, 9. The eyes of the Lord search to and fro throughout the whole earth in order to find, show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are pure before him. God's wandering all over the place looking for that kind of people, people with pure hearts that he can do mighty things on behalf of. And so living pure lifestyles, clean lifestyles, is important. And doing it with the right attitude, of course. God judges our heart. We, we can look pretty good on the outside, but we can be rotten on the inside. God's looking for people who are both, who are living a clean lifestyle and are clean in their hearts. They keep very short accounts with God when they fail, and they strive to become more Christ-like so that they don't sin as much anymore. God's looking for those kind of people to answer prayers mightily for. Again, if you aren't there yet, and I'm not, he's still, here's your prayer. I'm not saying to despair. I'm just saying we're looking for the kind of prayers that bring revival, that bring whole society transforming results. And it seems like those kind of people really get God's attention. So that's part one. Part two, and you probably think, boy, he should have been done by now, but I'm not even close. Here we go into part two. How do we pray? What kind of prayer really gets God's attention? And uh, Pastor Tim and I have both gone over to the church awakening thing in March many times. And Last year we were blessed to have a, a speaker there who had been one of the shepherds at the Asbury Revival. And uh, this fellow actually has a Ph.D. in studying great moves of God, if you can imagine such a thing. Um, And so he's kind of familiar with the subject matter. And so he was in a good position to kind of describe what was happening at Asbury. But that's not my point. My point is, in his Ph.D. work, he studied what kind of prayer really makes a difference. And what he found is that there's a difference between something he calls casual prayer and travailing prayer. 
Casual prayer is how most of us pray most of the time. Travailing prayer is prayer that is supercharged. And the term travail is the same kind of word that describes what pregnant women go through when they're delivering their child, uh, travail. And uh, normally if, if you know, this is what I've been told, of course, uh, a, a woman who's giving birth is in some pain and uh, things get kind of intense, uh, I guess. And oftentimes the, the woman giving birth uh, will say some things and cry out in, in various ways. And uh, there's probably some real juice behind that. Uh, th- those comments are travailing comments. And uh, now let's apply that to prayer. Prayer is praying in a way that really is intense and passionate. I love the, one of the choruses we sang about passion. Having passion, having an intensity, not just rattling off words, but really being invested in the outcome in a way that gets us uh, fervent. You know, that goes back to that same verse in James, the fervent effectual prayer. Fervent is another word for travailing prayer. It's this intense. It's like, I really, really mean this, God. I'm not just saying this, and I'm not just saying it, I, I, I'm desperate for you to move. And that's a key factor that often leads to travailing prayer, which is desperation. The more desperate we are for God to do something, the more intense we generally get in our prayers. The, the more our prayers are driven out of a deep, deep place within us. And we can't fake this, folks. That's the problem. You, you can't fake travailing prayer. You either are doing it from the depth of your being or you're pretending that you are. And so I have found that my prayers lately have a greater and greater element of travail in them because of the desperate state that our nation, our city in Spokane, our state government, the world that we live in, there are so many things going on that unless you're totally living in a bubble and are screening out everything and somehow you know living oblivious to the circumstances around us, you've got to start to realize that, boy, we really need a move of God in this time. And this is more and more driving how I pray, a deep place of deep desperation. And what we found in the transformation videos, as, as you watch those, and the other revivals that have taken place, is that often the situation is so dire, so bad, that the handful of Christians that are there praying are doing so out of a deep, deep place of desperation. They need God to move or it's all over. It's just hopeless. And uh, folks, uh, one reason I wonder why God keeps tarrying and why he keeps allowing things to get worse and worse is maybe he's just waiting for some people to get desperate enough to really pray and really seek his face and not just go through motions. Travailing prayer can come out of a deep place of desperation. Another thing that can drive this kind of heartfelt depth and intensity of prayer is Hunger for the presence of God. The presence of God. It's one of my favorite topics. God shows up 
in the Bible. Did you know that? God shows up at different points um, in different ways. Burning bush with Moses, angels talking to Abraham. You know, every time an angel shows up in the Bible, what's the first thing the angel says? Don't be afraid. Why does the angel say that? It's because he's big and mean and buff and, and looks, well, maybe. But I think there's more to it than that. I think it's because the angels who are delivering a message from God just came from the presence of God. And the presence of God is kind of still kind of hanging on to him and, and, and it's, uh, it's uh, leaking all around. That's what it says, you know, uh, in the Luke 2 account, Christmas Eve, shepherds out in their fields watching their flocks by night and the angel of the Lord appeared and gives his little message. And then it says, the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were sore afraid, King James. The presence of God. Wah! You know, it's, it's, it's a real thing. And when it happens, it gets your attention. And it happens all over the place. Um, when the, we talked about dedication of the temple, and that was the context for Second Chronicles 7.14, that famous If My People verse. Well, the context was the dedication of the temple. Two chapters earlier, end of chapter 5, we see that when the temple was dedicated, that um, the cloud settled in. And the glory of the Lord was there such that the priests couldn't even minister. They were just so overcome by God's presence, they, they were useless. They couldn't do anything. Two chapters later, we see the same thing after Solomon prays. His prayer to God that leads to God's answer in chapter 7, which includes the If My People verse. <laughs> Comes down, too far to the move. The Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus was there with his disciples. And uh, Moses and Elijah showed up, and Jesus started shining, just radiant. They were so discombobulated, they didn't know what was happening. Lord, should we build some booths? What? Oh, and, and little tabernacles, little shelters. Um, the presence of the Lord. We could go on and on. Acts chapter 2. Holy Spirit comes. Tongues of flame. And uh, rushing mighty wind. You know, all of that presence of God presence of God when God comes in revival true revival the presence of God is there for a period of time and it's not just in a meeting place it's kind of everywhere in the community and it changes everything people's hearts are softened their minds are opened uh, everything changes but we, we look at the Asbury revival as something that happened recently this wasn't a transforming revival, but it was where God showed up for a period of time and really made a difference. <coughs> and what people say and when, they, when they went into Hughes Auditorium there in uh, Asbury College, Wilmore, Kentucky, is that you could just sense God's reality. His presence was there. And these kids, college kids, Christian college, but a lot of them were raised in the church. They didn't really know Jesus. They never really made a commitment to him. They were just going there because, you know, they grew up in the church. It's a church school. Parents wanted them to go to church school. And, and they're just there. They don't have any kind of faith. They've got lots of doubts. Uh, that, that was typical of the kids in that campus. But all of a sudden, when they go into Hughes Auditorium, God is real. This isn't just, you know, theology class. God is there. They can tell. They, know, they can experience his love. They can experience him touching their hearts. They become aware of their own sin, their own shortcoming. And they're willing to confess their sins and fall down before him because he's there. He's real. This isn't just theology. That's the presence of the Lord. You can feel it in the whole city. 
I have friends who went there. They stood in line for hours to get into the auditorium, but it was just a quiet, peaceful kind of thing. I don't know about you. I hate standing in lines. I hate going to amusement parks and waiting 45 minutes to do a two-minute ride. But these people were standing in line. They were quiet. They were peaceful. There was just a spirit even outside. Once you've tasted that, it's not hard to hunger for it. It's not hard to want that. It's not hard to desire it. And one thing about uh, revivals, the more you study them and the more you become familiar with what God has done, the easier it is to want that now. And we hear these, the presence of God described in these revivals where people fall to their ground under conviction just out in the open fields when the Lord is there. When uh, ships entering harbors have people fall under conviction of sin just because the presence of God is lingering in that broader area. And that's just out in the open. That's not in the church where, where the worship is going on. You go to genuine revival meetings, and there are a lot of fake ones, by the way. A lot of churches have a week of revival, and they have an evangelist come in, and they get a few people saved and sing a lot of songs. And then after the evangelist is gone, the church is about this much better than it was before. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, I'm talking about where God shows up. Hunger, a longing for that. It goes right along with the seek his face I was talking about earlier. It's that overlap again. If we really have experienced his reality... We're more driven to want more of it. It sounds like a selfish experiment, experience thing. And it, yeah, the experience is pretty awesome. But it's not about that. It's about a love of God and being with him in a way where we can actually sense his reality and be intimate and experience his love, experience his work in our lives, be sensitive to his leading. We can hear from him. It's all real. It's not just, uh, I believe, and therefore, it, you know, it, we just accept it by faith. It's the real deal. A hunger and longing for that, a prayer that reflects that, that can make a difference. (coughs) One more thing. Um, And then I'm really going to quit. I know when a preacher says that, it doesn't mean anything, but I really will. Um, The other thing is praying with expectancy. And I haven't covered all the bases, by the way. I'm just hitting some majors. Pray with expectancy. That's something George Otis emphasizes a lot. Believe that God actually has revival on the clock, that he is going to do it. Most of us pray with hope, and I have for years just prayed with hope, not really believing he's going to do something. But having the faith to believe that God will come and that he will do a mighty work, that he will change things, dramatically across a broad spectrum of society. Praying with that kind of expectation is important. God's looking for a certain kind of people praying travailing prayers driven by desperation and or hunger for him with expectancy. Why should we be expectant that God will do something when it seems like it just gets worse and worse and worse and nothing is changing. Well, maybe this will give you some hope. God moved powerfully in our land before it was even a country. That's called the First Great Awakening. It took place back in the 1740s and 50s. 
One of the key catalysts was George Whitfield. Uh, another was Jonathan Edwards. The first great awakening is crediting with change, changing the whole culture of society and so that a people that were used to being slaves under the tyranny of a king actually believed that they could have freedom because that is something they learned as they've come to this deeper faith in Christ that happened during the First Great Awakening. Historians will say that thing, secular historians. First Great Awakening, 1740s and 50s. Well, after we became a country and uh, won the war <coughs> and uh, drafted the Constitution and so forth in the 80s, 1780s, well, then the country went really downhill spiritually. It was in a terrible place. And in the early 1800s, we had something that was called the uh, Second Great Awakening. God moved powerfully across the broad front. One of the places he moved was out in the frontier, which at that time was Kentucky and Ohio and Tennessee. And as the settlers moved west and started establishing communities there, uh, something came up called a camp meeting that happened during this time, early 1800s. Camp meetings were where they'd build a stage, possibly with a shelter, out, out in the middle of the woods, cut down the woods. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, then they would uh, have preachers come and speak, and there'd be music. and People were getting saved all over the place. Lives were being transformed. The whole wilderness was, was changing from a bunch of hardy, rugged, godless people to a bunch of Jesus followers. That was also uh, happening in a different way up in northern New York through the work of a, of a revivalist named Charles Finney. This happened at the same time and had radical transformation in that part of the country, Second Great Awakening. Well, things got crummy again after the early 1800s. And then we were you know, approaching the Civil War times and our country's in uh, a real bad place. And in 1857... Shortly before the war broke out, a fellow businessman in New York, Jeremiah Lanfear, decided he was going to hold a prayer meeting at noontime for business people. So he did. Not very many people showed up, but he kept doing it. And more and more showed up. Pretty soon it spread. Pretty soon it spread like crazy, and there were prayer meetings happening all over New York. Pretty soon there were so many prayer meetings at noon that businesses stopped for the prayer meetings. Pretty soon, the presence of God was so powerful in New York that people coming into the harbor were having the kind of experience I was talking about. Even on ships, they'd sense the presence of God as they entered New York City. I've worked in that place, and it boggles my mind. Um, businessmen's prayer movement spread rapidly across our country. It was a great move of God. Then, of course, uh, time goes on. That wears off. We get in another dark place. <coughs> and then in the early 1900s, something that would be significant for this congregation in particular is that uh, a fellow started holding some meetings out in L.A. on Azusa Street. Your pastor has written a, a little book about that. You may have read it. The Azusa Street Revival started, and that was the birth of the Pentecostal movement, which came out of the holiness movement, as I said and this had a tremendous impact in that time and up until present. I mean, your denomination came out of that birthing place of the, of the uh, early revival as the Pentecostal movement spread across our country and ultimately across the world. 
Well, then things got kind of crummy again. And uh, we entered the time of the 60s in our country. Vietnam War, lots of protest, uh, unrest on college campuses. You know, it was a messy time. Some of you remember it. I was in high school in the 60s and kind of insulated. Again, I was so selfish, I didn't pay any attention to what was going on anyway. So I didn't entirely catch that, but I certainly got a sense that there were protests happening in places and that uh, this was a hard time for many people. And then along comes the move of God amongst the hippies, who also popped up there this time. And you, you know what that's about. There was a movie that came out last year, which documented it, called The Jesus Revolution, and uh, caught part of what happened anyway in that move of God amongst that group of people. And out of that came many of the th- songs that we uh, sang in church, new kind of music. Uh, instead of hymns, we had this young kind of vibrant uh, with different kinds of instruments. The whole thing come out of that that movement as well. It was an amazing move of God. I came to faith in Christ uh, in that time. In, uh, oh, let's see. I don't know the exact year. But it, it, was, it was in the midst of that as it was moving across the land. And it was even on secular college campuses, which is where I, I came to faith in Christ. I got involved with campus groups back then that helped disciple me. God was moving in a mighty way. Well, I don't know if you've been keeping score here, but if you follow this through, first great awakening to second great awakening, about 50, 60 years. Second great awakening to the Business Sons Revival, about 60 years. Uh, the time between the businessmen's prayer revival and the Pentecostal movement, about another 50 years. Uh, move ahead about 50 or 60 years. You get into the 60s in the United States, and that's the, the Jesus Revolution. And if you move ahead about 60 years, where are we at? Here. It's time. We're on the clock. It's time. You know, 50 years ago, 53 years ago, 54 now, uh, 1970 on the campus of Asbury College, Wilmore, Kentucky, there was a mighty outpouring of God. They canceled classes and had meetings for weeks. 53 years later, last February, one year ago, on February 8th, it happened again. Hmm. From right during the middle of the Jesus Revolution, Asbury campus. Until last year, 53 years later, Asbury campus, God showed up powerfully. And the impact of that is still being felt in many campuses around the world. It's time. We have a reason to pray with expectation and conviction that God is going to do it again in our time. Our normalcy bias drags us back. In other words, We tend to only pray according to what we've experienced and know. Well, expand yourself a little bit today, folks. You may not have experienced this, but it's time. So believe that it can happen. Expect that it can happen. Expect that we're on God's clock, and we don't know what it's going to look like. Every one of these things we've just described looked different. The common factor was that God moved powerfully and made a difference, a big difference. I believe another awakening is coming to our country and that we are on the verge of it. And so let's be people who pray fervently, 
travailing prayer, expecting God to move in a mighty way. It's time. So instead of just talking about prayer, let's do a little praying. Lord God, we are so thankful that you have moved in the past, both in your word and throughout history. We are so thankful that we can learn from how you've moved in the past, both through your word and by studying history. And Lord, we're so glad that we can understand a little better about what we can do now to help be used of you to bring about your next great move. Lord, we pray that uh, you will help us to become more like the kind of people that you love to listen to. We know you hear our prayers. We know you're hearing this prayer. We know that you've heard the prayer we've, we've already had this morning in this place and perhaps had before we came here. But Lord, we want to add to that the kind of prayer and the kind of praying from the kind of person that really moves your heart, moves you to action. We don't understand how that works. You're a sovereign God who can do whatever you want. And somehow you have decided to work through the prayers of your people as part of that whole scheme. And we don't get it. But Lord, we want to be the kind of people praying the kind of prayer that leads you to your next great move. So Lord, help us to be more aware of how we need to grow into Christ-likeness. Lord, if that be in the area of humility and, and humbleness, we pray that we would become aware of that and desire that in our own life and be very serious about allowing you to do the kind of work you need to do in us to make us that kind of person. Thank you for the singing that we did earlier, the surrender kind of uh, song that we sang. Lord, may that not just be words to a song. May that be the attitude of our heart. That we want to yield ourselves fully to you and allow you the freedom to work in us and to transform us into the kind of people that are ultimately more like Jesus, a humble people, a people who are repentant, not only with our own stuff, our sins of commission and omission, but also praying for the community, the country, our state, our town, as though we are part of the problem to some degree. Help us, Lord, to pray those kind of prayers, being that kind of person. And Lord, build in us a hunger for yourself. Give us a taste, we ask, of what it looks like to see you show up. And once we've got a taste, Lord, build from that a deep hunger and longing for more of you, more love, more power, more of you in our life. We sang that earlier. Lord, come, do a mighty work in us. Fill us with a longing and a hunger for your greatness, for your reality. And Lord, out of that, we pray that our prayers can become more and more travailing prayers and, and less casual prayers, prayers where we're much more engaged, prayers coming out of the depth of our being, prayers coming out of a sense of desperation, prayers coming out of a hunger and longing for you, prayers coming out of an expectation that you're going to do it again, you're going to do something mighty, you're going to do it in our time, and it's going to blow our minds. Lord, fill us, we pray again, afresh and renew and anew with your spirit, quickening that kind of change in our lives and fueling that kind of prayer in our lives. Thank you so much for our time together this morning. 
We lift all these things to you in your mighty name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Can everybody stand? Like this morning, we have heard a call to pray. And I think that um, without too much um, laboring and um, lengthening this any, you know, too long, I just feel like there are some of us that really need to answer that call. And so if you feel like God is just really putting something on your heart where you're, you're being nudged, if you're feeling the, the presence of God in your heart where you need to answer that call, and it could be a call for humility. It could be a call to seek God, seek his face like you've never sought him before. It could be a call of repentance, as we heard all of these things. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek his face, turn from their wicked ways, and pray. So if you feel like God is prompting you in any way, can you just answer that call this morning? I want you to answer that call just by coming up front. Coming up front and saying, yes, God, I hear you. I am answering that call that you're putting on my heart today. And I just want to close in prayer um, just one more time. So you want to do that? Just answer that call. want to wait just for a few more seconds. If you feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit to answer that call, whatever that is, is to take a step forward and say, yes, God, I hear you. I am answering that call this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that You speak to us as you have spoken so clearly to us this morning. And here we are, all of us, answering this call, answering this call of humility. A humility. We lay our pride down. We even come forward this morning out of humility because we are answering that call, answering the call to seek your face, Lord, help us to seek you like we have never sought you before. Help us to read your word like we've never read your word before. We will hunger and thirst for righteousness. We will hunger for your presence, Lord. We won't be content every single day without that expectation as we pray, just seeking your face, humbling ourselves, and expecting that as we pray, you are going to show up in our lives you are going to answer those prayers and help us continually have a hunger for you, hunger for your presence, Lord. Not be so busy about our day that we forget that you're still calling us every single morning, every single day, to just come and spend time with you. And Lord, as we gather around the tables and have fellowship and 
and eat together, Lord. I just pray that you would bless this food to our bodies, but also bless us as we have fellowship with one another and allow your presence to be so tangible that we know that as we have gone into the house of the Lord, we have met with you. And we just thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen.